Traffic began life as a six-part series for British Television's Channel 4. Its three separate plotlines trace the heroin route from Pakistan's opium fields through the hands of German drug smugglers before injecting into the arms of British addicts. Broadcast in 1989, it won three BAFTAs and an international Emmy for Best Drama. Talk of a Hollywood adaptation quickly followed. Yet it would be over a decade before the feature film was released. The problem was that the material proved to be too controversial a subject for the studios. In fact, every Hollywood studio turned it down. And so it was independent outlet USA Films that finally put up the $46 million needed to make it. In adapting the series, film producers Laura Bickford and Edward Zwick engaged the services of director Steven Soderbergh, who then worked closely with screenwriter Stephen Gagan. Together, they moved the troika of plots to North America, where the drugs are smuggled from Tijuana, Mexico, across the border to San Diego, California, and end up on the tables of privately educated high school kids in Cincinnati, Ohio. I can't believe you brought my daughter to this place. Whoa. Why don't you just back the fuck up, man? To this place? What is that shit? Okay, right now, all over this great nation of ours, 100,000 white people from the suburbs are cruising around downtown, asking every black person they see, you got any drugs? You know where I can score some drugs? Think about the effect that that has on the psyche of a black person, on their possibilities. I, God, I guarantee you, you bring 100,000 black people into your neighborhood, into fucking Indian Hill, and they're asking every white person they see, you got any drugs? You know where I can score some drugs? Within a day, everyone would be selling. Your friends, their kids, here's why. It's an unbeatable market force, man. It's a 300% markup value. You can go out on the street and make $500 in two hours, come back and do whatever you want to do with the rest of your day, and I'm sorry, you're telling me that, you're telling me that white people will still be going to law school? For all that, it's worth noting that Gagan's original intention was to treat the subject the same way Stanley Kubrick had the nuclear arms race in Dr. Strangelove. Gagan wanted to satirise the war on drugs, a campaign he still feels to be so flawed that its entire existence needs to be called into question. Here is Gagan. You're not winning the war on drugs with an interdiction policy if that's what's happening. And that is what's happening. You can go out on the street one block from here and you could absolutely do all the research you need as to how the war on drugs is working. The war on drugs is like, oh, a macro-governmental policy where we declare war on human nature. You know, war on human nature, the language of it is, is completely broken. It doesn't work. Molecules don't have morality. There's not a good molecule or a bad molecule. You don't get high, you know, oh, I'm high on Sudafed and coffee, so I'm a good person. Or I'm getting drunk on bourbon, so I'm, I'm like, great. Oh, it's ridiculous. And most people sit back in their suburban households and they don't realize the cost of it. The cost of it are lives in prisons, dead drug addicts because of failed failed policy and we do it over and over and over and the more you need to change it the more people harden calcify and say no no we got to keep driving the truck down this road ultimately gagan decided against satire because in his exhaustive research he found that everyone he met from law enforcement officers police advisors and government officials were also disillusioned that satire was an inappropriate and insensitive response instead gagan structured a screenplay around comparisons and contrasts so you have a series of families struggling in their own way for survival amid the drug war. In Ohio, the Wakefield family, Robert, a state judge, played by Michael Douglas, his wife Barbara, played by Amy Irving, and their high school daughter Caroline, played by Erica Christensen. While Robert is appointed the new drug czar, 
Barbara is reluctantly admitting to a dependency on alcohol while slowly owning up to her time experimenting with drugs while in college. Meanwhile, Caroline, an A-grade student, is quickly moving from Class C drugs to heroin and crack. In San Diego, there's the Ayala family. Carlos, played by Stephen Bauer, is arrested for drug trafficking and this spins his wife Helena, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones, into a spiral of despair. This shock is compounded when Helena is told that her little son's life is at risk if her husband, now in prison awaiting trial, does not settle the debts he owes to the cartel across the border. On the other side of the border, we have the drug cartels themselves, which are family-run organisations. Further echoing that tapestry, in Mexico, there are two anti-narcotic officers, Javier Rodriguez and Manolo Sanchez, played respectively by Benicio del Toro and Jacob Vargas. While on the American side, their counterparts, undercover operatives for the Drug Enforcement Administration, are Ray Castro and Montel Gordon, played respectively by Luis Guzman and Don Cheadle. And deepening that, one man from each team will be killed in the line of duty. The whispering. The whispering. Hello. Can't hear it. I know. The fucking bug's too far away from the room, man. I told you it's halfway to the kitchen. We're not going to get shit. They're saying something. Sounds like they're conspiring to conspire. You know, I could feel the light vibrating from that home. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't think she's in on it, man. Come on, I dream about this. I have actual dreams about this. About busting the top people, the rich people, white, white people. people. I know, I know. But I don't think she's in on it, man. Those comparisons are obvious. Subtle ones include the playing of games, fishing, golf, children's playgrounds, computer quizzes, and baseball. Could those games be in any way a play on the film's regard for the policies of successive political administrations? Now consider the single tear Helena sheds in her time of stress and the single tear that leaks out of Caroline's eye as her hit of crack takes hold. Compare also the way pregnant Helena jokes with her friends about having a second glass of wine over lunch at the golf club with Barbara complaining. You might want a pencil and a little FaceTime with your daughter. Barbara. Because I'm at the edge of my capabilities, Robert. I think it's important we maintain a unified front here, Barbara. If you start in on the war metaphors, I'm going to drive this car into a fucking telephone Look, I am hole. as worried as you are. Oh, I don't think so. Leave me alone, give me some money. That's what I get from our daughter. She has a way of shutting me out that seems very familiar. Well, she has a way of self-medicating that I'm sure is very familiar to you. I'm not the one who has to have three scotches just to walk in the house and say hello. I have one drink before dinner to take the edge off. It's different. Oh, is it? Because otherwise I would be dying of boredom. With the three separate plotlines, switching so frequently back and forth, Soderbergh knew that there would likely be moments where the audience might lose their bearings as to which story was which. So, serving as his own cinematographer, Soderbergh decided the best way to prevent that from happening was to colour code each of the plotlines. That way, the audience would come to associate certain colours with certain locales. Burned out tobacco for Tijuana, vibrant primary hues for San Diego, and then cold, steely blue for Cincinnati and Washington. But Soderbergh didn't stop there. He then reunited all three schemes by opting for a handheld camera, which resulted in an intimate, restless, quasi-documentary feel. Filming the scenes in long takes, Soderbergh then handed the footage over to his editor, Stephen Mirioni, instructing him to freely use jump cuts to not only create impetus, but also spontaneity. 
making it feel as though the camera just happened to be present as the events unfolded, instead of everything being staged. Soderbergh further added to that feel by encouraging his cast to neutralise the drama so everything appeared and sounded as natural as possible. That in turn helped facilitate the film's non-actors, such as US Senators Harry Reid, Orrin Hatch and Barbara Boxer. Again, this reinforced the documentary feel. In aiming for that tone, Soderbergh was taking his cue from Giulio Pontecorvo's 1966 masterpiece, The Battle of Algiers. Pontecorvo's film was set during Algeria's War of Independence, and time and again throughout the film, Pontecorvo deployed techniques that he in turn had adapted from the Italian Neorealist movement. Being an American movie, you might be tempted to think that all the corruption is on the Mexican side of the border, and that America is fighting the good fight all on its own. But traffic counterbalances that by indicating that America's position is hypocritical, if not ultimately unsustainable. As one of the senators says, I don't know that you can win this war. I mean, everybody says we want to declare war on drugs, but you know, if you have 25% of high school seniors are using drugs, if you reduce that to 10, that's a great improvement. And I'll congratulate you, that'd be a phenomenal achievement. But you'd still have 10% habitually using drugs. So if the war is unwinnable, why fight it? Because the fight is very profitable. Profitable for the law enforcement agencies, for arms manufacturers, for the prison industrial complex, for the politicians and countless other interest groups who feasted the trough of the endless conflict. If anything, the war on drugs is a license to print money. That's not just my opinion. That's the experience of Mike Levin, who for 25 years served with the Drug Enforcement Administration. When I started in the drug, drug war business, because that's what it's become, uh, in 1965 when I went to work for the government, the drug war budget was something like $10 million, and there were two federal agencies. Uh, when I retired, New Year's Eve 1989, there were 53 federal and military agencies cutting up $11 billion. Uh, the, uh, the, the key to that part of the budget pie is statistics. Oh my God, uh, you know, we've spent $110 billion in the last decade fighting drugs, yet there are still 2.7 million hardcore addicts on the street. Drugs are still easy to get, any kind of drug that you want. We've got absolutely nothing for the money. In 1990, Levin published Deep Cover, a memoir detailing his experiences. And in it he wrote, It is both sobering and painful to realise, having personally accounted for at least 3,000 criminals, serving 15,000 years in jail, and having seized several tons of various illegal substances, that my career is meaningless and had no effect whatsoever on the so-called war on drugs. The war itself was a fraud. Look, boys, this has worked for years. Okay, it's gonna to continue to work for years. NAFTA makes things even more difficult for you because the border is disappearing. Do you realize in the next year or two at the outside, Mexican trucking companies are gonna be able to go from the States to Mexico and back again with the same freedom as uh, UPS? DHL, uh, FedEx, you name it, it's going to be a fucking free-for-all. Were we on Larry King or something? <laughs> Shit. Tell us something we don't know, Eddie. You guys remind me of those Japanese soldiers left behind on deserted islands who think World War II is still going on, you know that? Let me be the first to tell you, your government surrendered this war a long fucking time ago. Which leads me to the persistent complaint levelled at the film. Opponents of traffic claim that in its haste to criticise, it fails to present a solution. To which I say, those people are not paying attention. 
The character of Carolyn Wakefield is symbolic of several things. Being so young, she symbolises naivety, but also she symbolises the future. The clue comes in her surname. Wakefield, a space where you become conscious. Being the white daughter of an elected public official, she comes from an extremely privileged background, and she always squanders the opportunities that such privilege affords her. Why? Because she is more intent on numbing the pain she feels than facing up to it. What's your daughter on? I don't know what you mean. Well, I mean, have you asked her what kind of drugs she's tried? No. I don't know. Is she in any kind of therapy or professional help? No, 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 no way. My daughter is one of the leading students in her school. Well, I hope it stays that way. But Caroline's plotline does not end with her in jail. Instead, the film puts her in treatment. And what does her father Robert say during one of the group sessions? Uh, <clears throat> my name is uh, Robert, and my wife Barbara and I are here to support our daughter Caroline. And we're here to listen. Robert arrived at that understanding because earlier, when he addressed the White House press room as part of his appointment, he realized he couldn't meet the sacrifices the office expected of him. If there is a war on drugs, then many of our family members are the enemy. And I don't know how you wage war on your own family. Traffic suggests the war on drugs is being fought in the wrong way and in the wrong direction. 23.5 million Americans are addicted to alcohol and drugs. That is approximately one in every 10 Americans over the age of 12, roughly equal to the entire population of Texas. But the problem isn't just illegal drugs. There is also the drugs approved by the DEA and made available over the counter through prescriptions. Created by Big Pharma, these drugs are then heavily promoted across the country at conventions and conferences. Written up by your local GPs, and as a result, patients are now getting hooked on highly addictive opioids. Clearly, this isn't just a criminal problem. It's corporate. And it is not only about supply. It is about demand. Drug use should not be dealt with as a criminal issue, but rather a healthcare one. The problem is, there is not much money to be made by such programmes. Meanwhile, the Drug Enforcement Administration, which engages the US Armed Forces, has an annual budget of $2 billion. America's private prison system is a $5 billion industry. And finally, the US small arms market generates roughly $8 billion a year. Traffic is 15 years old, but came of age the instant it was released. Its position is not only persuasively presented, it is not only withstanding the test of time, its thesis sounds more convincing as each day goes by. Mm -hmm.